This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Parcast Crime Bites. We're offering our listeners some additional content about the world of true crime letting you dive even deeper into some of the most notorious subjects. Every week, in addition to your normal Crimes of Passion episode, we're exploring the most fascinating true crime themes covered across the ParCast network. We've collected short clips from some of our most popular ParCast originals to help us explore ideas like motivation, method, and madness, and show how interconnected the true crime world really is. You can find these original episodes for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. A list of episodes that we used will be posted in the description. Today, we're discussing cases of notorious assassins. What motivates someone to assassinate a president or their musical hero? Forensic psychologist Robert Fain, in conjunction with the Secret Service, investigated United States assassinations between 1949 and 1996. Fain found that the perpetrators varied quite a bit in their motivations. Some were in it to gain fame and notoriety. Some wanted to cause a political disturbance, and some wanted to call attention to a cause. Fain said that most assassinations are not spontaneous, and that the killer will spend weeks or even months meticulously planning their attack. However, he debunked the myth that the assassins stalked their target extensively before the attack. He said only 4% of victims received death threats or reported stalking beforehand, highlighting the fact that the perpetrators would like to fly under the radar until they're ready to strike. In our clips today, we'll highlight three notorious assassinations and the perpetrators behind them. We'll see what motivated them to kill some of the most prominent figures in history and the lasting impact of their crimes. We'll start with a clip from ParCast Original Conspiracy Theories, covering the first presidential assassination in history, Abraham Lincoln. On April 14, 1865, John Wilkes Booth crept up behind Lincoln while he was watching a play at Ford's Theater and shot him in the back of the head. Booth was an agent for the Confederate Secret Service. Before the attack in Ford's Theater, he'd actually hatched several plots to kidnap Lincoln in an attempt to turn the tide in the Civil War and revive the Confederacy's cause. John Wilkes Booth was an actor and a Confederate sympathizer. Toward the end of the Civil War, he became a secret agent for the Confederate Secret Service, a network of spies with ties to the secessionist government and Confederate President Jefferson Davis. Davis oversaw Secret Service activities and personally approved several missions, including Booth's, to win the war for the Confederacy by kidnapping Abraham Lincoln and holding him hostage. To be clear, this is not a conspiracy theory, but a fact. Booth's work as a Confederate spy and his kidnapping plots against President Lincoln are well documented. 
When General Grant took over the Union Army, he ended the previously standard practice of prisoner exchanges. This was a massive blow to the Confederate Army, which lacked the numbers of the Northerners, and many in Confederate leadership felt they couldn't spare a single captured soldier. Confederate leaders believed that the Union Army and United States government would be willing to negotiate for their president's safe return should the Confederacy capture Lincoln. Davis assigned three separate secret agents to each attempt to kidnap Lincoln. One of those agents was Booth. While we don't know exactly when Booth became a secret agent, we know that in the summer of 1864, he'd almost entirely stopped acting in order to focus solely on his efforts for the Confederate cause. Booth was responsible for recruiting his own co-conspirators in the kidnapping plot. His earliest recruits included close friends and acquaintances. In December 1864, Booth recruited George Atzerodt, a man with demonstrated proficiency in navigating the Potomac River. His navigation skills would be necessary to transport the kidnapped Lincoln from Union territory into Virginia. Another key member of Booth's conspiracy was David Harold, a hunter who could serve as a guide through the rural countryside. Booth's last recruitment was Lewis Thornton Powell, a strong and healthy man who would be up to the task of wrestling and subduing a struggling President Lincoln. Booth ultimately had seven co-conspirators who met regularly in a tavern owned by Mary Surratt and operated by her oldest son, John Surratt. Booth's orders were to kidnap Abraham Lincoln, transport him into Confederate-held lands, and hold him hostage for ransom. The specifics, such as when and where to capture Lincoln and who would assist Booth in this kidnapping, were left to Booth's discretion. On March 17, 1865, just a month before the assassination, Booth and his co-conspirators learned that Lincoln planned to attend a play at the Campbell Military Hospital. Lincoln would travel with only his driver, leaving him exposed and unprotected while on the roads outside Washington, D.C. Booth's plan was simple. After the play concluded, Booth and his conspirators would intercept the president's carriage on its way back to the White House, overpower Lincoln and his driver, and then spirit them both away through southern Maryland and into Confederate states. On the night of the kidnapping attempt, one key part of the plan failed to materialize. Abraham Lincoln himself. He changed his plans at the last minute, choosing to attend a ceremony at the National Hotel instead. Another kidnapping plot involved the Ford's Theater, the same location where Booth would ultimately kill Lincoln. At one point, Booth and his conspirators explored lowering Lincoln from his private box onto the stage during a performance, but they ultimately deemed this plan too complicated and unrealistic. On April 9, 1865, General Lee of the Confederate Army surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant at the Appomattox Courthouse. With the war over, Booth and his conspirators lost all incentive to kidnap Lincoln. It was around this time that John Wilkes Booth made a new plan, and a conspiracy to kidnap became a conspiracy to murder. Officially, Booth wanted revenge on the man who had defeated the Confederacy. Booth famously hated Lincoln, even before the war, but had believed that the South would triumph. Given a few lines from his diary, such as on April 14th when he wrote, quote, 
our cause being almost lost, something decisive and great must be done, end quote. Booth may have also believed that Lincoln's death would inspire discouraged Confederate troops to resume fighting. That interpretation is just speculation, but the theory that Booth wanted vengeance is widely accepted. Following that clip from Conspiracy Theories, John Wilkes Booth was ultimately killed while trying to evade capture. Several of his co-conspirators were also found guilty and either hanged or sentenced to life in prison. There's a bevy of speculation surrounding Lincoln's assassination, from the belief the murder plot was hatched by Vice President Andrew Johnson to the theory that the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, ordered John Wilkes Booth to assassinate the president. But Booth's decision to assassinate the president came from a larger scheme to avenge the Confederacy and force the progressive Lincoln out of office. While Booth was motivated by politics, our next assassin had a more selfish reason, fame and notoriety. In this next clip from Assassinations, we cover the murder of former Beatle John Lennon at the hands of Mark David Chapman. Chapman suffered from undiagnosed schizophrenia a mental disorder that can hinder someone's ability to determine fantasy from reality. As Chapman fantasized about achieving renown as a musician, he was met with the harsh reality of rejection. Unable to accept that his failure was caused by his own musical shortcomings, he blamed the so-called phonies of the world. He wanted to find one of these phonies to target. By the spring of 1976, 21-year-old Mark felt hopeless. His glorious destiny hadn't manifested. God hadn't shown him the way. He began to fantasize about killing himself and decided to spend the last days of his life in one of the most beautiful places in the world, Honolulu, Hawaii. But shortly after his airplane touched down, he had second thoughts. The tropical scenery was enchanting, pristine beaches beckoned. The world had too much to offer. He decided that he wanted to live after all, but once he returned to Ohio, Mark's earlier depressive mood returned. He flew to Hawaii with suicidal intentions a total of three times. In May of 1977, he tried to gas himself to death with carbon monoxide at the side of a road. Luckily, he wasn't successful, and 22-year-old Mark was admitted to a mental health ward in Castle Memorial Hospital. He only stayed there as a patient for a few weeks until he seemed to shake off his depressive funk. At that time, Mark was diagnosed with depressive reaction, depressive neurosis, severe. But the doctors didn't recognize his schizophrenia. Nevertheless, the care he received proved life-changing. Mark felt so good about his experience in the hospital that he soon began working there. Things seemed to be turning around. He recommitted himself to God. His mood brightened. He began making plans for the future, including an extended round-the-world vacation. Along the way, he fell in love. In early 1978, 22-year-old Mark met 27-year-old Gloria Abe, a travel agent who helped plan his global trip. From their first conversation, the two had a clear, powerful attraction. 
They were quickly engaged in early 1979 and then married on June 2nd that year. Gloria took her vows to love, honor, and support her husband seriously. No matter how erratic or unsettling his behavior became, she stood by his side, even when his impulses turned violent. Mark has never publicly clarified when he first read J.D. Salinger's masterwork, The Catcher in the Rye, but the novel had a striking effect on his psyche. It tells the story of Holden Caulfield, a disaffected teenager who spends a long weekend alone in New York City to escape the phonies, or dishonest people. Although he was nearly a decade Holden senior and came from a very different background, Mark took Holden's words to heart. He too thought that the world was infected by phonies, hypocrites who cared only about their own self-aggrandizement and were willing to let the world burn. Ironically, Mark was obsessed with pursuing his own fame and fortune, but he thought that the way to make a name for himself and fulfill God's destiny was to assassinate an even bigger phony, exposing their hypocrisy to the world. A clear victim presented himself in October of 1980 when Esquire magazine wrote a piece on former Beatle John Lennon. The article decried John's status as a washed-up has-been. It had been 11 years since the Beatles had broken up and five since John had released any new music. Even worse, he was living off the fruits of his past fame and fortune. He whiled his days away doing nothing. For a celebrity who repeatedly publicly advocated for class equality, it seemed deeply hypocritical that he'd live as an unemployed, out-of-touch millionaire. As Mark read the profile, he felt like it had been written just for him. It sent a crystal clear message. John Lennon was exactly the type of phony he hated. The sort of person who Mark was destined to murder. In the following weeks, Mark became obsessed. He bought a biography, John Lennon, One Day at a Time by Anthony Fawcett. As the book discussed John's wealth and opulent lifestyle, Mark only became further enraged. Mark began splicing together clips from various John Lennon songs to play secret messages. The phony must die, says the catcher in the rye. Following that clip from Assassinations, on December 8, 1980, just hours after getting John Lennon's autograph on a record, Mark David Chapman shot and killed Lennon outside of his apartment building, the Dakota. Still living in the fantasy he created for himself, Chapman immediately told police that he wanted to be known as the man who killed John Lennon. Handcuffed and in the squad car on the way to the police station, Chapman told officers, I am the catcher in the rye. Psychiatrists for the defense later revealed that Chapman's undiagnosed schizophrenia was the catalyst for the attack, and that in Chapman's mind, he could not separate reality from fantasy. Coming up, we discuss the aftermath of the assassination of Bandit Queen, Poolan Davy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, 
the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Now back to the story. So far, we've covered the assassinations of innocent public figures. John Lennon and Abraham Lincoln died at the hands of assassins who wanted to earn fame or change the political landscape. But our next clip from Female Criminals covers the assassination of a criminal. Poolan Devi was the bandit queen, leader of a criminal gang in India notorious for the vengeful massacre of 22 residents of Bamai, a small village. After serving 11 years in prison for her crimes, Poolan was released and later elected as a member of parliament. Despite the fact that the state government had withdrawn all charges against Poulin, she still had enemies. Members of a rival gang of bandits had been slaughtered in the Bemai massacre that Poulin had coordinated. Eventually, they took their revenge. In 2001, Poulin was assassinated by three masked men. A week after her death, one of the supposed gunmen came forward. A week after her death, the plot deepened even further. A 28-year-old man of the high Takur caste named Sher Singh Rana called a press conference to confess publicly to assassinating Fulan. He told the press that he had killed her both to avenge the men she had killed in the St. Valentine's Day massacre, but also because he was seeking an edge up as he began a career in politics. It should be noted that the only evidence they had that Rana was even involved was his press junket confession. Many police officers, Fulan's family, and others in her political party thought Rana was nothing more than an opportunist. An additional 12 suspects were rounded up. All 13 men faced charges in court, even though all the witnesses agreed that only three men had been present at the time of her death. Rana never named any other potential gunmen. The court system in India, like in the United States, can be laboriously slow. From 2001 to 2014, the trial against Fulan's killers limped along until Rana, and Rana alone, was found guilty of Fulan's murder on August 14, 2014. The other 12 men named in the charges were released due to insufficient evidence. After the judge sentenced Rana to life imprisonment for Fulan's murder, Rana asked, quote, why have you convicted only me? End quote. It was a question Fulan's family echoed. The investigation after Fulan's murder and the years that followed it unearthed no new evidence against her killers, so it's likely that they'll never face prosecution for their crime. Instead, the Takur caste took the opportunity at Rana's sentencing to proclaim him a hero of their caste, almost in an attempt to recreate Fulan's heroic rise after the St. Valentine's Day massacre.
Sher Singh Rana escaped from jail in 2004. After enjoying two years of freedom, he was tracked down by the Delhi police in 2006 and sent back to prison, where he remained until he was released on bail in 2016. Despite her assassin's best efforts, Pulan Devi's legacy lived on in India. As journalist Kalyan Mukherjee puts it, she represents the paradigm that a dispossessed woman can make her own path in this country. In the study mentioned at the top of the episode, forensic psychologist Robert Fain sought to find out what makes someone become an assassin, and what he found was that it was very hard to nail down a profile. There are too many different motives, only three of which were highlighted today. John Wilkes Booth wanted to change the political landscape, Mark David Chapman desired fame, and Cher Singh Rana was out for revenge. But in the end, their actions all resulted in lives cut short too soon. Thanks for tuning in to Parcast Crime Bites. We hope you enjoyed this episode on notorious assassins and their motives. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode on wealthy victims. If you'd like to listen to the episodes we discussed today in full, simply search for our Parcast original shows, conspiracy theories, assassinations, and female criminals on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite Parcast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time.